This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. Serene Chung is a wildlife trade researcher and her work involves recording wildlife traded in many of the region's most notorious markets and she has brought many emerging wildlife trafficking issues to light through her research and collaborative work with other groups. A bird lover herself, she's also a coordinator with the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, or IUCN, Species Survival Commission, Asian Songbird Specialist Trade Group, it's a bit of a mouthful there, and she was also one of the national Geographic Explorer grantees from 2019 to 2021. And she's going to join me now to share more about her work. Welcome, Serene. How are you today? I'm good. Hi, Juliet. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you've been on the show before and we were talking about um, cage birds and the uh, trade of that. But let's before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about your work. So as I mentioned, you know, you're all of these different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you manage and implement projects on wildlife trade across across Southeast Asia uh, with a focus on illegal and unsustainable trade in birds and reptiles. Am I correct? Can you tell me more? Yeah, that's right. Um, I work for uh, Traffic International Southeast Asia. I'm based here in Malaysia and I'm a senior program officer. So in this role, I manage and implement projects that cover uh, the wildlife pet trade. And we carry out research to understand what's going on in terms of what species are involved, uh, the volumes that are involved, what kind of legal or illegal trade is taking place, the trade routes, etc. And we also work on finding solutions to regulate the trade and to make sure that it doesn't negatively impact the survival of the wildlife in the wild. And so through this, we support law enforcement agencies in their work. We work with the private sector, such as the transport sector, the tech sector, and also, um, as you mentioned, collaborating with other conservation organizations to increase our influence and the impact. Uh, yeah, a large part of my portfolio does focus on bird trade. So that's why I talk a lot about the bird trade. <laughs> um, we've carried out quite a lot of work in multiple countries, including Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Singapore, most of Southeast Asia, actually. And yeah, I think because of this work that I've done on the bird trade, I'm also a co-coordinator for the Asian Songbird Trade Specialist Group. Okay, excellent. And I think, you know, uh, I, and I was reading this, you know, and, and I think you agree with this. When we talk about the illegal wildlife trade, uh, the life animal trade of cage birds, and I think that doesn't perhaps get the sort of attention that it deserves. Am I correct? Um, and I, I, I never heard of this. There's a phenomenon dubbed the Asian songbird crisis. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I guess your first point, people think of birds as something that's very abundant and they're everywhere and they will never disappear. But that's not necessarily true. Um, there have been examples of bird species that have gone extinct because of, well, various reasons, but also including trapping and trade. Um, so about the Asian songbird crisis, I think to give some context, the practice of songbird keeping and the trade in songbirds goes way back, centuries back. Um, there's research papers from the 1960s and 1970s documenting the massive volumes of birds recorded for sale in markets in Bangkok, in Jakarta. And I think it's only more recently that there's more consistent attention that's paid to this conservation issue, Mm. especially as, uh, like I mentioned, some species are facing extinction due to trapping for trade. Yeah, and this problem arises where the demand for certain songbirds or the level of trapping is so high 
that wild populations start declining to dangerously low levels. And the thing about the bird trade is that not all of it is illegal. Some of it is permitted um, under national rules and legislation. Mm. And some of it can even be sustainable in that it doesn't negatively impact the populations in the wild. And the problem really arises when it's unsustainable. Um, In 2015, uh, Traffic and Wildlife Reserve Singapore organized an Asian Songbird Crisis Summit So this brought together conservationists and researchers who are working on songbird trade and conservation in Asia. And I guess that's where the term started being used uh, more prominently that there's Asian songbird crisis that is taking place and there are species that are going extinct because of this trade. Okay, and it's a bit of a cultural thing as well, right? I mean, I think you go anywhere. I know growing up, I used to see cage birds all the time, these beautiful singing birds, and it was just so normal, right? You just It was just part of the culture almost. Um, but how would you describe this trade of songbirds in Asia? I mean, can you talk to me about it? What sort of, you said some of it is uh, regulated, but not most of it. What regulations exist for this trade, if at all? Yeah, so songbirds are a very diverse group of species and there's thousands of species of songbirds. Um, some of them are very in demand um, for bird keeping because of their beautiful song. They're, they're considered to be masters in singing. Um, and some of them are pretty common. You just see them everywhere and no one's particularly interested in keeping them. Sure. Um, so because of this diversity, there's also a whole range of regulations for songbirds. Some of them um, are very threatened by extinction or they're only found in very limited localities. So they might be protected under national legislation, but there are some that are also not protected. Um, And there's also different levels of regulation and protection because there are some that may not be allowed to be taken from the wild at all, may not be traded, may not be kept. While there are some that can be trapped and traded and kept with licenses, with permits, or within a specific quota. Uh, CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, is the international convention that regulates international commercial trade. Right now, very few songbirds are listed on CITES. And this is partly because a lot of songbird trade has typically been quite domestic, so it doesn't really cross borders. And international trade was not seen to be the main threat. But increasingly, we are seeing more cross-border trade taking place. And this could be because local populations are becoming depleted and traders are turning to populations from other countries to meet the demand. All right. Okay. And... When we caught up last year, right, um, you spoke to uh, some of my colleagues on The Bigger Picture. Uh, we spoke about a study titled Smuggled for Its Song, The Trade in Malaysia's Oriental Magpie Robins, a study that you co-authored. Um, can you remind our listeners about that report? I remember it, would, it being so mind-blowing to me, but maybe you can remind us about what it was all about and some of the main findings from that report. Yeah, sure. So that report uh, looked at the illegal trade, so seizures of oriental magpie robins that involved Malaysia, as well as the trade of the species within the country. And the reason we put together this study was because we had noticed that there seemed to be an uptick in the number of oriental magpie robins that were seized um, going from Malaysia to neighbouring countries. Mm. And this was quite surprising because you expect, you know, it's such a common bird, you see it in your gardens, your backyard. Mm. 
Um, and to think that, you know, that they are being smuggled in hundreds and thousands, possibly there, would, there could be a day where you, you don't see them in your gardens and backyards anymore. You not hear so that song that, anymore, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, you can't hear that song. Uh, so what our research found was that over, well, from 2015 to 2020, over 25,000 oriental magpie robins were seized um, involving Malaysia alone. So this includes seizures that took place in Malaysia, were carried out by the Malaysian authorities, as well as those that occurred in other countries, but include Malaysia as a location along the smuggling route. Mm. And two-thirds of these birds were seized in 2020 alone. So it was a huge increase. Um, and two-thirds of these birds seized were confirmed to have been smuggled from Malaysia to Indonesia. So what this tells us is there's quite an alarming number of birds being smuggled from Malaysia to Indonesia. And a lot of it was coming from Peninsula, Malaysia, going to Sumatra mm. by sea, um, or from Sarawak overland to Kalimantan. Gosh. And because Malaysian and Indonesian suspects have been arrested in some other cases, sometimes in both Malaysian and Indonesian suspects in the same case, it indicates that there's some form of networks in both countries operating to smuggle the animals. Yeah, and and I mean the the numbers are quite staggering. And this is uh this was findings during the pandemic. Am I correct? Yes, that's right. <laughs> With movement control orders and travel, uh, you know, border closure, yeah. sorries, and you know all of that, and still it was that amount of birds being smuggled. Yeah. So in in normal times where there's freer movement. It could be a lot higher. Yeah, exactly. And and just to be clear, this trade uh, this of Malaysia's Oriental Magpie Robins, that's not regulated in any way or is it? Uh, right now, Oriental Magpie Robins are not listed as protected in Sarawak and Peninsula Malaysia. Okay. But we've got some hopeful news, I guess. Uh, Malaysian wildlife trade regulations and the protected species schedules are currently being revised and we hope that uh, the Oriental Magpie Robin will be listed. Yeah, so this will not halt all trade, but instead it will allow authorities to regulate and monitor the trade through a licensing system. Mm-hmm. Okay, and can you just explain, you know, what are the sort of factors that allow, you know, this sort of illegal trade in songbirds to thrive? Yes, uh, and like I mentioned earlier, not all songbird trade is illegal. So I think I'll speak a bit more generally about the overall songbird trade. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that you mentioned earlier about the cultural aspect of it, I think it's quite important to explaining the the background, the context of why songbird keeping is popular. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, and in some cultures, people have been doing it. So there is a sense of wanting to preserve um, something that someone's father passed into them maybe. Or there's also a bit of a spiritual angle for some bird keepers. They they feel a sense of peace and calm listening to a bird or to take care of a living being. Mm -hmm. Um, And these cultural and social aspects are really interesting because we have to understand the motivations and the drivers behind them if we want to reduce the demand. That's right. Yeah. Some of the interesting things that have been found from recent research by other researchers Uh, They looked into the social economic aspects of it. And one of the studies carried out by my colleagues in Vietnam found that um, there were these bird clubs that were very active where, you know, men would gather around and they bring their cage birds and they sit around and they chat. 
and they talk business. So it's like, it's akin to how you go to a golf club and, and you chat business while you're playing golf. Um, but in Vietnam, you chat business at the bird club. Wow. So that's quite, yeah, it's quite interesting. And uh, these bird singing competitions have become very popular, especially in Indonesia, but also to a lesser extent in Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand. Um, there's a lot of this gathering and, and sense of camaraderie, like, oh, you know, I'm here, I keep a bird, I'm going to talk to you about bird keeping. Uh, there's a sense of community around that as well. So okay. this is this is pretty interesting. Yeah, so it's not just our research. Others True. have done quite a lot of work in Indonesia, especially looking mm -hmm. at bird keeping there, um, have found that in these competitions, it's not just about... Uh, competing your bird it's also a bit of prestige like oh I've got a song bird that I've trained from you know from young to sing and it's got the strongest song and I've won prizes wow. in this competition oh, so there's there's many aspects and layers to it I think something that's quite important to note is that the trade sometimes takes place in these competitions in the bird clubs where people buy and sell their birds um, and they also get their birds direct from the distributor, from pet shops and in markets. Uh, and there's also some of this interaction taking place online through uh, social media groups, through forums. So that's where people uh, buy and sell their birds and also chat about you know, how do they keep their birds, how do they train them. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And that social media element is quite, is I think quite an important factor about how, you know, it's so widespread as well, right? In that sense? Yes. Uh, it is quite a big factor, uh, but interestingly, I don't think um, it's as major or important uh, compared to some other kinds of um, online wildlife trade. Because yes, it does facilitate uh, the communication and all that. But there's for bird keeping, there seems to be a lot of in-person, face-to-face uh, -face elements to it that are that seem to be more important than other kinds of wildlife trade. Okay. All right. Um, let's just go for one quick break, Serena. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about your work with the IUCN Asian Songbird Trade Specialist Group. I'm speaking today to Serene Cheng. She's a wildlife trade researcher. She's also a National Geographic explorer. Uh, her story actually is, is part of a 12-episode pod, podcast series called Expedition Earth uh, because of her uh, experience as a Nat Geo explorer. We're going to find out more about that after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me on the line today is Serene Cheng. She's a wildlife trade researcher. She's a National Geographic explorer. She's also a coordinator with the IUCN Species Survival Commission Asian Songbird Specialist Trade Group. And we're finding out more about the work that she does today on this show. And um, uh, Serene, before the break, you know, you were telling us about all the sort of different factors that allowed uh, trade in songbirds to thrive. Am I correct? And I remember we asked you this back in 2021 as well when we spoke then. What has history shown us? when sought-after species such as these songbirds uh, are not properly regulated? Yeah, we have seen instances of wild populations declining to such dangerously low levels in a short time you know, if, if trade levels in such in-demand species are not well regulated. And the example that I use a lot is the straw-headed bobo. It's a species that used to be common across its range in Southeast Asia. You know, used to... That, they could be find, found in edge forests, um, along rivers, and quite common, you know, you can, right now in Singapore, you can still go to an urban park and hear its song mm -hmm. uh, because it's not trapped to extinction in Singapore. 
But because it's so sought after for its beautiful song, um, it's now thought to be extinct from Thailand, Java, um, suspected to be gone from Sumatra, uh, and some parts of Peninsula, Malaysia, and Borneo. Gosh. So it's got the stronghold in Singapore because of low levels of trapping there. And you might still be able to hear it in some parts of Peninsula, Malaysia, and Borneo, but it's so rare right now that um, one of our collaborators in Kalimantan says that it's harder to find a straw-headed bobo there than an orangutan. <gasps> no way. Yeah. Gosh. Okay, okay. Sorry, and, I um, you. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to add a few more examples of species that, you know, have become so rare that they've become extinct in the wild. The Javan pipe starling is one that is extinct in the wild now and it's only present in captivity. The Bali starling has such intensive conservation and reintroduction programs to return the species to the wild when previously it was you know you'd find them all across Bali okay so and these are I guess you know birds that we don't even think about in that sense right and but yet they are being traded so heavily and and being uh, trapped almost to extinction in the wild yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay, all right. And how does your work um, with the IUCN uh, SSC Asian Songbird Trade Specialist Group come into all of this? I mean, you are a coordinator. Uh, what role does the group play in sort of fighting this crisis? So the Asian Songbird Trade Specialist Group is, uh, it sort of forms, a, it's like a coordinating kind of role. It was established to prevent the extinction of songbirds okay. um, threatened by us unsustainable trapping and trade and was actually birthed from this Asian Songbird Crisis Summit in 2015. So when we all got together to discuss um, the problem and solutions, we thought, you know, let's form a specialist group that could form like a, a formal coordinating body for this coalition of individuals and institutions, you know, the subject matter experts from different fields. And because the songbird trade is such a complex and multifaceted issue, you know, there's social aspects, economic aspects, you need to look at individual species um, and the issues facing them, but you also need to look at it more holistically in terms of the demand. So it requires the whole range of interventions that complement each other. And this particular specialist group, uh, is quite unique because it's the only one that focuses on trade specifically. Traditionally, the specialist groups would focus on a particular taxa like bears or pangolins. But this Asian songbird trade specialist group is so focused on this particular issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. We've got um, five thematic subgroups that are sort of designed along the, the themes of the main work of the members. And it's supposed to be complementary. So this includes field research, genetic research, conservation breeding and introduction, trade and legislation, and education and community engagement. So the work um, that's done by the members of the specialist group is, is very much driven by the members. Uh, and its membership is on a voluntary basis. Okay. And what the ASTSG helps to do is to raise the profile of the issue amplify the work done by the members, create linkages, and help to support uh, funding and advocacy efforts. Okay, all right. And yeah. it's something I was reading, a, a priority taxa list was recently uh, introduced, yeah? Yeah, yeah. so this is hot that? off the press, actually. Um, and it's something that I was working on, uh, obviously with the support of all the experts in the specialist group. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we launched this revised priority taxa list last month. 
And we've had a priority species list since 2015, and that started with 28 species. It's unofficially expanded to over 40 species. Um, and now, based on the latest research and information that we have, we have this priority taxa list. And how we came about um, deciding what belonged on this list was through uh, three criteria. So the first is whether trade is the main threat to this taxa. Uh, second, whether the taxa is facing population declines. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, whether there's established non-native populations globally. So if there are, for example, then uh, the species or the taxa is not in danger of going extinct on a global level. Okay. Yeah. And we have two tiers for these priority taxa lists. The first tier is like the top priority ones where the taxa survival is severely threatened by trade and requires urgent conservation intervention. Mm -hmm. And the second tier is like a watch list. So it's taxa that we think are impacted, that we know are impacted by trade, but we don't exactly know how much they are impacted, how badly they are impacted. So more research is required and we need to keep an eye on them, basically. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I think I want to talk a bit about why we're using a taxa list instead of a species list. Mm. Yeah. And this is so that we can recognize unique conservation units. Uh, and this allows us to take into account genetically distinct subspecies or populations. So even though they are not recognized officially as separate species, or at the species level, they may not be seen to be threatened. Some of these at like the subpopulation or the subspecies level are very, very threatened. Mm -hmm. um, an example is the white rum shama or the murai batu. So that's considered to be least concerned at the species level because it's widespread. It's found across most of Asia. But the subspecies that are found in Southeast Asia are very threatened by, by trade because some of them are only found on small islands, or the white crown shama is only found in some parts of Borneo. Um, and there are some subspecies that are thought to be extinct in the wild because of this trapping. So we want them to be noted in this priority taxa list. And yeah, finally, I want to also add that this uh, list is a living one, and we aim to update it as new information and new research uh, is completed and you know, we, we understand more about these taxa. Okay. And and this is widely available to anyone who's interested? It's it's yeah, there for everybody yeah. pretty much, right? Yeah, it's on the Asian Songbird Trade Specialist Group website. So we've listed the, the full list of taxa mm -hmm. there. And we hope that it will help, um, you know, researchers or conservationists who are working on the, the, these taxa or planning to develop projects on these taxa. It will help them to get funding or get more traction, um, you know, in developing interventions and work. Okay, got it. And you are, of course, you know, working with traffic, as you mentioned at the start, right? How does your work with the ASTSG uh, complement the work that you do with traffic as well? Uh, I would say the work that I do at traffic supports the goals and the objectives of the specialist group mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that the research that I conduct as a wildlife trade researcher at traffic forms the evidence base. So the findings, the key messages, the recommendations, they are used to inform the ASTSG priorities and also to inform conservation actions by others. So in fact, um, one of the first bird things that I published in 2014 
that documented the full extent of birds traded in Jakarta markets. Uh, just the sheer numbers and I guess the how how shocking um, the extent and the volume of the trade was. Mm-hmm. This was one of the drivers behind the, the organization and formation of the Songbird Crisis Summit, which then led to the formation of the specialist group. Okay, okay. Yeah. So but it also works both ways. I, I would definitely say that my traffic work benefits from having this diverse network of researchers and conservationists that I can draw upon. So I've got quite a good overview of what's going on in the songbird trade space because I'm a co-coordinator of the group. And there's members who work on Asian songbird trade that takes place in other countries and regions, for example, or those who are specializing in conservation breeding. So they can give us information on you know, what captive breeding requirements there are for a particular species so we can understand whether it's even feasible to breed them on a commercial scale and then use that to inform like policies and regulations around the commercial captive breeding of these species. Or we need to get evidence that the trait is impacting wild populations. And we get that through the field researchers you know, who are on the ground and watching the birds in the forest, in the field, and understanding whether they are still there or not. And I think one more thing to note is that the specialist group does have amplification impact. Uh, we've been ramping up the specialist group's communication. So mm-hmm. there's a lot more visi- like opportunities, basically, for visibility. We can talk about traffic's work through the specialist group's social media, the newsletter, etc. And personally, I find it very gratifying that other members of the specialist group are using our findings to further their own work. Uh, which is great. And that's exactly why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a great collaborative tool. I mean, that's what I'm getting from all of this. It's just, yeah, like a nice bridge for everybody to sort of like get on and, and collaborate and put their information together. Uh, I don't yeah. know if I'm correct in saying that. Yeah. 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 We tr- I think we are trying to foster this whole collaboration mm-hmm. to make sure that our work does complement and amplify each other's to get bigger impacts. Okay. All right. And I just want to pivot a little bit and speak about uh, something else that uh, you are as well. You're a National Geographic (laughs) Explorer. I'm very envious of that title. And you're a grantee from 2019 to 2021, am I correct? Um, Where you investigated the bird trade on the Malaysia-Thailand border. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, um, here's a short introduction to why we are doing this work. Um, in traffic, my colleagues have been working in the Balum Tumangor Forest Complex in the north of Peninsula Malaysia for many years. Um, and they noticed that there seemed to be a rise in illegal trapping and trade of birds along the Malaysia-Thailand border. Okay. And we also know that bird singing competitions were quite popular in southern Thailand. But we don't know exactly what's happening. Like, are birds from... Malaysian forest caught there and then smuggled to Thailand or vice versa Mm. Um, and this was a knowledge gap and this was therefore marked as a priority action in the specialist group's action plan so uh, we were really fortunate to get a grant from National Geographic to carry out some research and, and poke around and try to understand like what species are involved in trade in this area where they are sourced for from and where they are going to how they are transported and how they're traded. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, COVID did throw several spanners into our plan. Mm, so, okay. you know, we had all these grand plans to visit key border locations on both the Malaysia and the Thai side. Um, and we had to postpone or adapt these plans and in some cases cancel them completely. 
Uh, but we were really fortunate in that we we were able to get an extension on the project and um, get some Thai researchers to to visit uh, locations on the Thai side when there were no movement restrictions there. So that was great. Um, and I think what's also interesting is because there's minimal movement across the borders because of COVID, uh, yeah. this would impact our findings. And we were finding that there was practically zero movement of birds across the border. Oh, so um, a bit hard to say whether this is what normally happens. Uh, and we'll try to see if there's opportunities to keep monitoring this. Okay. Yeah, we are currently writing the results up for mm-hmm. publications. Okay, but, um, you know, all these experiences, you know, when you were a National Geographic explorer, I mean, it's going to be featured as part, or it is featured as part of a 12-episode 12, uh, 12 podcast series, which is called Expedition Earth, am I correct? Um, and it's not just your story, but also those of other uh, Nat Geo explorers. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is an amazing opportunity. Uh, it's a series that's hosted by National Geographic explorer and storyteller Lily Sadegat. So she's the host. She's really good at drawing stories out of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the podcast is designed to transport the listeners to various locations across Asia, like the last remaining rainforest in Philippines and the stories of the explorers who are trying to save it. Um, you know, the ocean waters off the coast of Singapore, the deepest, darkest pools of the Mekong River. And in my episode, I talk a bit about, you know, bringing the listeners to the bird markets of Southeast Asia, what it feels like, what it sounds like. Um, Yeah, the aim is to create an audio journey with the Nat Geo explorers to connect the listeners to nature and to remind them about what makes us human and what makes our planet wonderful. Yeah, so I, I think ultimately the, the whole aim of this podcast is to inspire and inform and invigorate the love and wonder that we have for planet Earth. Yeah, uh, and personally, it's pretty cool because I know a few of the other explorers who are also on the podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I was able to really vibe with uh, the second episode, you know, what, and what Andy Young was talking about, coexistence with wildlife in the city. Because uh, I, I grew up in Singapore and, you know, in Malaysia as well. You see, like just yesterday, I saw a monkey walking like, along the housing estate. And these are the interactions that we have with wildlife. Um, sometimes they're, they're fine, you leave them alone. But sometimes you can get some conflict that arises from that. So how do you manage that? How do you deal with that? Right. Um, and yeah, I'm also super excited to listen to the eighth episode where Naomi Clarkson is going to be talking about sharks and her really exciting research. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think what's quite cool about the podcast, this is the first time I think that Nat Geo Asia has done a podcast because usually it's very visual, right? True. Like looking at videos and photos. Um, and in this podcast, they were trying to you know, create an immersive experience, like audio, soundscape and everything for for the listeners. So in, in my episode, um, <laughs> Lily had asked if I could attempt to mimic some bird calls. And okay. <laughs> so yeah, have a listen and see whether it's um, realistic or not. Okay. And um, I also try to describe um, like experiences and locations like in, in the bird market, like like I said, you know, what does it feel like to be there? Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I'm really excited about it, as you can tell. Of course, and it sounds amazing. And I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you as well for a bird call on this show as well. I think it's only fair. Okay. Uh, I'm going to do something that sounds like a booboo, I think. <laughs> Go for it. 
very go. good. Very good. I recognize that sound. Very well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and of course, you can hear more uh, on your episode. And I think uh, your episode, yours was episode three, right? Uh, called Caged. Am I correct? Expedition Caged. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. All right. And I mean, all, all of the episodes are available um, for streaming already. Am I correct? Yeah, they are. And so they're being released uh, slowly. Uh, some of them are already out, like mine's already out. Okay. Uh, you can listen to the podcasts on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Tunes. Mm-hmm. And all you need to do is search for National Geographic Asia Expedition Earth, and you'll get the whole series and you can pick the episodes. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Serene, uh, for joining me today. And, you know, for everyone listening, I hope they go and listen to that 12-episode podcast series. Again, just search, I think, for Expedition Earth. I think that would be quite good, right, to to find yeah. out more. Um, I guess, you know, before I let you go, Serene, any last message you'd like to leave us with, especially with regard to, uh, you know, why we need to pay more attention to the uh, Asian songbird um, issue, you know, and the trade in, in caged birds. Uh, yeah, maybe something along those lines. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm someone, I love birds and I love watching and hearing them in the wild. And it saddens me that there may come a day where I will not be able to see or hear them in the wild anymore because, you know, they're, they're in cages. Um, and I I guess like my, my appeal is for people to appreciate birds in the wild and to appreciate your wild spaces. Um, and yeah, I think as we start appreciating birds in the wild instead of in cages the demand for caged birds will drop leave wild things in the wild right Anyway, thank you so much again, Serene, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Serene Cheng. She's a wildlife trade researcher, a National Geographic explorer. Again, if you'd like to listen to her podcast from the Expedition Earth series, you can find it on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Just search for Expedition Earth. And if you miss any part of our interview today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my earth or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.